Welcome to the Hallmarkies podcast. We are so excited today to be talking with a Hallmark director. This is so fun. We love talking with the directors. And uh, today we have with us David Weaver. And uh, thank you so much, David, for coming on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So what we like to do with our guests is, is find out at the beginning, what inspired you to become a director? How did you end up in the career that you have? Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of my dad's fault. <laughs> um, he was an executive uh, for CBC Radio, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, all through from the 60s through to the 80s. Um, and uh, he never worked, <clears throat> pardon me, he never worked in TV or he only worked in TV very briefly, but he knew a lot of people who did. And he knew a lot of people who were um, both feature film directors and um, uh, television directors as well. And so from a far too early age, I knew what it meant to be a, to, to be a director. And I thought it just sounded amazing. Um, and then as I, you know, um, grew up and uh, became a teenager, I, I loved to go to movies. I would go to the uh rep cinema all the time and and uh you know i just was a voracious tv watcher and and um you know very into old films and and all that kind of thing and and so when i was able to go to university i i did a ba and then i went to film school at columbia university in new york and um and that led to my first my first scripts and my first films wow yeah um Again, what was it like when you got your first uh, directing uh, gig? Well, it was it was interesting because um, the way I started was in indie features. So sort of the first gigs were things that I kind of created or produced myself. Um, and so for a long time, for I'd say like the first decade of my career, such as it is, I really kind of initiated things myself. But you know, then I got married and I wanted to start a family and I wanted to, you know, work more, <laughs> work more regularly. Um, but it was thrilling when, it's thrilling anytime when, that someone brings you a project and believes in you enough to try to think that you're the person who can, you know, um, shepherd it forward. And, um, and, but it was certainly a thrill when I started to get television work and when I started to really be able to do this you know, it's more than kind of, <laughs> you know, a hobby that my parents, you know, wondered whether, whether it would ever work out for me, you know. Yeah. Would you say that I've heard it said that the directors are the CEO of the movie kind of coordinating all the different pieces? Mm -hmm. Would you, would you think that, do you think that's accurate? Yeah, there's some truth to that. Um, I mean, it's a very strange position in a way, because on the one hand, it's intensely creative. Um, but on the other hand, there is a lot of time management involved um, and you have to be able, you know, particularly with television movies, most of which are made on, you know, very short 15 day schedules, you have to be able to really understand what you want to achieve and how to achieve it and, and what means are at your disposal and kind of create the right I guess the right structure within which you can allow your creativity and the creativity of the crew members and the creativity of the performers to really flower. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think the CEO analogy is, is accurate, but it's sort of only 
tells half the job because when I think of a CEO, I think of someone who's very, you know, might be very spreadsheet driven or, or something along those lines. And there's certainly an element of that to the, to the process of directing, but you want to get past that to create a safe environment or a great environment for your collaborators to express their creativity mm -hmm. in. And, and that's really, for me, what is key about the position is about the job is, is, is being very, um, you know, eyes open about, about what we can achieve and how we can best achieve it so that we don't, we don't pretend that we have more money or more time than we actually, than we actually do. You know, do you go over the, like the daily kind of shots that you're hoping to get with your director of photography? Yeah. And then yeah. if they say, well, I, I think we should do this shot this way. Like how, do, how does that all kind of work out as far as who kind sure. of decides what it ends up in the final product? Sure. Well, so all, you know, all directors work different ways. And mm -hmm. one, of the mis one of the mysteries of it is even after you've been to film school or you can listen to, you know, a lot of uh, what I tell kids who are asking me about directing is it's great to listen to commentary tracks on the old, you know, DVDs or in the ex iTunes extras or what have you of the films that you really love because a lot of times that's the best schooling is that you'll learn from other directors' experiences. But everybody does it in a different, in a different fashion. And I often say that I do it exactly the same way as when I was 16 years old and I was in the backyard with a video camera and, you know, the sun was going down and all my friends <laughs> wanted to go home and I had one more shot and I was trying to talk them into doing that. And um, so the, the, the thing there is that I just really, I like to plan. So what I've done in the past is, is I do a list. I, I go through the, the, the script when I receive it. And often the scripts are still in, um, they're often still in flux in the sense that there's rewrites being done or um, things that the network have, have asked for. So you're planning the movie even while things are changing. So that's sometimes a challenge. The, then what I do is I go through the script and I really just try to sit by myself and visualize the movie in my head and see the movie, how the shots look, how the actors perform, particularly if I've started to learn who the actors might be. And, you know, think to myself, well, this is where we would love to have a great sweeping crane shot, say. Um, this is where we want, you know, this is an intimate moment. So this is where we want to be in a close up, a really tight close up. Um, this is a almost like, you know, one character is chasing another. So this is where we really want to move the camera really as swiftly as we can. That, that's very simple, pragmatic things, all, all based on, you know, my film knowledge and <laughs> my love movies. And then I write those down and I make a shot list and um, I'll circulate that to the, to the cinematographer and to the, you know, assist, assistant director and to the, um, you know, some of the other members, the producer and so forth. But really from that point on, it's, it's trying to realize that shot list, at least for me. So Yes, I'm always well, you know, I'm always welcoming towards anyone who has an idea for something. But at the same time, I guess I would say that idea, I have to feel that that idea has to is better than whatever idea I had. 
um, best idea wins. And right. so, you know, we go through the shot list. We look at that. We sometimes I have, a, I can draw. So sometimes I'll draw what I'm proposing and, and then the cinematographer, you know, if he needs a crane, if we need to order a crane from the equipment house on that day, then that's something he'll run off and do that. He'll take care of that side of things. Um, so it's collaborative, but I really do, um, you know, I really feel like it's, it's my job and my privilege to, to be the one that says, well, this is how I see the film and this is, and, and, and can we execute it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so after you finish the day of shooting, then you have the dailies to, mm -hmm. to look over and those go to the editor. Mm -hmm. So are you in communication with the editor as far yes. as what things you want kept, what things maybe you might not want to keep yeah. or you're kind of mm -hmm. eh on? Yeah. Yeah. So again, everybody works differently, but I, there's a position, um, it's been on, on the last couple of movies, it's been filled by my great friend, Jen, who is the scripts, what's called a script supervisor. And it's her job to keep track of all of the continuity between the different shots and the different scenes. So, you know, for instance, if um, she's one in charge of making sure that the character is in the right dress, because you might shoot one scene at the beginning of the schedule and then shoot the following scene three weeks later, you know, on another day and, and the character, it won't make sense if the characters change their clothes. So continuity takes care of that basic element. But for me, because she sits beside me with the cinematographer in front of the monitors all day, she, what she'll also do for me is take down my reactions to the film as I see it in front of me. So I'll, I sometimes say that I'm the first audience member for the movie really. And <clears throat> I'll just talk to her even during a take sometimes and I'll say, oh, that moment is great. You know, make sure that Kelly, the editor uses that. Or uh, as we move to new camera setups, I'll say, you know, remind Kelly that we want to start with the tracking shot and then we'll go to the medium close-up shot, that sort of thing. So what I, what I really find is great about, about working with someone like that is that it's a constantly evolving um, thing, the, film, the movie in front of me, and I try to react to it spontaneously. And a lot of times you'll find that the, my reactions are are what works for the movie, are, are the way that the movie is, is, um, ends up being edited. And that's because you can see in front of you, like, oh my God, Laura Osmos just had an amazing moment where you know, her eyes told her how she's falling in love with uh, you know, Juan Pablo. And so, or you know, Alison Sweeney just gave the, you know, we just, I just did a Christmas movie with her. She just gave the cutest look about when, you know, that character said something that's a little dubious. And you just want to make sure that in all of the sea of footage that the editor receives, those moments aren't lost because that's really what builds, you know, the quality, the texture of the movie. Um, so it's, it, so then I, you know, you know, then I go in the edit suite and sometimes I'm like, <laughs> where's that moment? <laughs> you know, I, I remember that because a part of it's a, a, a tool for me as well to remember what was really, what I really loved. And once in a while, um, you know, um, I've worked a lot with Kelly Heron as the, as an editor. And once in a while he'll say, well, it didn't really work. Or he'll say, oh, I missed that note. 
or we go back and try it and we try to make it work and see if it if it if it if it fits in the film but it really is um you really it's it's really a privilege like you get to see the you're the first viewer of the movie and and when the movie's working and when the and when there's um you know, chemistry between the actors or just a great spontaneous, a lot of, like, I love accidents when, you know, when something goes wrong during a take and the actors have to, you know, have to react to it and it keeps them fresh and in the moment. Um, those are the things that I, you know, that I want to see in the movie because they just, they make the movies feel more real, frankly. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, that's interesting to me. I like learning about the behind the scenes, kind of what goes into making these movies. Yeah. And so once the movie is edited, uh, is, are you the one who makes decisions as far as like songs or music or uh, if there's like a visual effect that's needed or something like mm -hmm. that? And mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, it differs a little bit. Um, definitely if there's a visual effect because often the movies have an air date and there's a bit of pressure to finish the movie. Um, so for instance, you, you have to make decisions about whether, um, you know, you'll have say in a Christmas film, whether you'll have falling snow, which will be real falling snow that you'll do on the set or whether it'll be a digital effect um, because that determines how much time they need in post-production to get those effects done. So the, a lot of those decisions are made even before you're on the stage, they're made in, in prep. Um, and then in terms of music, I, off, I, I love to have input on that. Um, I, I, it depends on the movie. Sometimes I know the composer and so I'll communicate with him directly. And a lot of times as well, there are musical components to the films. So, you know, you know I, you've seen more, even more Hallmark movies than I have. You've seen more than I've directed. So, you know, often people go to a dance or there mm -hmm. are dance scenes or, mm -hmm. um, you know, there might be a band playing or something like mm -hmm. that. So. I'm fortunate that I usually have, um, you know, that's usually a conversation between me and the network executive and the producers and the and then the composer. And then there's a thing that I think is really um, an amazing role. It's kind of the best job in the world, which is called music supervisor, which is basically the person who's in charge of going out and finding music for the movie. Um, so what's called needle drop from the old you know, having a record and the needle drop um, music, which is so say if they're, you know, say if there's a scene where um, the the couple have to dance and you want a more recognizable song. And so there's the whole music supervision side of things where they have to go out and find that song and see can, you know, sometimes can we afford that song? If we can't afford that song, then, you know, what other song would work? But what's really been great in the last few years with the Hallmark films is that Hallmark has made a real commitment to finding better music. So I made a movie last year, year, year and a half ago or a year ago called Playing Cupid. And in that, in that film, um, uh, Laura Vandervoort and Nicholas Gonzalez are cooking in a kitchen. And that we on the set, we played um, ain't no mountain high enough and the actors you know loved the song and it's a classic song and but we were not sure whether we could afford it to have the song in the movie and the network was great and really supportive and went out and and purchased the rights to that which I'm sure was not cheap 
And, and so now when you watch the movie, you see the actors responding to this great classic R&B song, which you know, hasn't been replaced by something that's maybe not as exciting or not as familiar, you know, not a classic. So mm. that's what I really love is when we are able to get those pieces of really key music into the movie. And, and I just think it really, <clears throat> you know, it's like, it, it makes you think of like something like the big, the big chill, how important music was to that movie. So I love it when that happens. And that's, you know, that's one of my favorite sequences that I've ever directed. So. Yeah, I really, that's still one of my favorites of uh, oh, right. this year. I think that was a really fun little movie. I liked the yeah. script and I uh, I liked uh, that whole scene was was very charming. It helped Thank build you. the chemistry. Yeah, yeah. And, and at the same time, it was very realistic. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. she was just dropping by to help him prepare some food for the, I think it was for the school. And, and it's, you can see, and that's why Laura and Nicholas were so phenomenal as performers, mm -hmm. because you can see their, I mean, they don't have any, I mean, they have a few lines of dialogue, but it's very inconsequential, but you can see through the scene, like their, their chemistry and you can see their relationship take a real leap forward. And that's what I really love is when, when the movies communicate something visually and, and, and you're really inside the character's heads and you can see how, how he's looking at her differently now and how she's looking at him and she's thinking about him romantically for, you know, maybe yeah. the first time. And that's, that's, and you can feel that on the set because, you know, Nicholas and Laura really got along. And so they really, you know, they really embraced that moment and they made, and they, and they were, and we just shot it really simply with two cameras. Um, and we just ran it a few times and each time as we ran it and was, we played the music, you could feel even the crew, you know, getting excited about it. And that's the thing that I always pay attention to too, is that when, you know, when the crew is engaged with something, when they're um, alert to like the chemistry that's happening on screen or the intimacy of an emotional moment or any of that sort of thing, that's when, that's when you know that you have something that's kind of special. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. yeah, well, and the whole lip sync scene is such a rom-com staple that it's fun yeah. when we get it. Yeah. 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 I really love that genre. I'm mm -hmm. really familiar with it going all the way back to, you know, like George Cukor movies in the 30s and the 40s. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I kind of see... I kind of see the Hallmark movies as the continuation of those yeah. movies, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that they're... I think that they're... I think the network is getting really so exciting in terms of like the scripts that they're starting to embrace and that there's greater diversity mm -hmm. in the movies and that the stories are a little bit more reflective of people's lives and, and the challenges that they have in their lives. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's, if you go back and you look at those romantic comedies from the thirties and the forties um, you know, the Cary Grant films or the Catherine Hepburn movies mm -hmm. or all of those you know, all those films that I have, I, you know, particularly love Gene Arthur movies. Um, mm -hmm. They're there. It's exactly the same thing. I mean, it, you know, there's an amazing Gene Arthur movie called, <clears throat> called the more the merrier, which George Stevens directed in, I'm going to say like 1942 or 1943. Mm -hmm. And she comes to Washington and she can't find an apartment. And it's all about how she ends up, you know, with Joel McRae, like basically living in the same apartment with Joel McRae and how, um, you know, how they fall in love. 
and and but that was the truth of those people's lives in those days, you know. And so those are the movies that I really love, you know, in Playing Cupid, as you as you remember, Nicholas Gonzalez's character David is going through a divorce. And there's some moments which are really difficult for him. And and Laura's character, you know, that's part of what makes her fall in love with him is that things aren't simple for him and, and yeah. easy. Um, so that those are the so I'm a real, you know, I'm a real aficionado of those movies, and mm -hmm. I feel really, I feel that like we're making movies in that genre and in that tradition. So. Yeah, well, and it's no secret that Hollywood has just stopped making films for women. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and the 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 target demographic for most movies made today is seventeen year old boys. Yeah, and so yeah, I, I mean, you'd be so excited when something like Crazy Rich Asians came out because it's like you hadn't had anything like that for for quite a while, at yeah. least that was quality. And, and so people turned to Hallmark because that was where you could watch a fun rom-com. And absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I, I don't know, I don't know if this is true in your life, but I mean, I have a, you know, 13 year old boy, so I go to see those movies, sure. but there's also, there's fewer and fewer movie theaters. I mean, it's, it's a real commitment to go to see a movie and, you know, you have to, yeah. you have to drive for like an hour, you have to find parking, you have to find a sitter, you have to, you know, all to see, you know, the Avengers save the world, which, trust me, I love and uh, it's great. But at the same time, I mean, there, there's all, you know, there are all these moments when I come home, I've had a long day. Uh, I, and I talk about this when we do pre-production on the films, you know, sometimes people just want to sit in front of the television and be transported. Um, and see a, a great love story or, 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 you know, something of that romantic comedy genre. But at the same time, <clears throat> they don't want it to be cliched or, or, or too easy for the characters, you know? And the movies that we remember and that we love are when it almost seems as if it, it, it won't work out or it works out in a, you know, in an unexpected fashion. Mm -hmm. So, that's what I love about those movies, <clears throat> you know, from the 30s and the 40s is that, you know, the Philadelphia story, like, is she going to end up with Cary Grant or is she going to end up with Jimmy Stewart? Like, they're both pretty, <laughs> they're both pretty dishy, you know, mm -hmm. and, and there's real kind of tension in that movie about like, what's going to happen. And so, yeah. you know, when I make these films, I try to keep that idea, that template in my head and genuinely treat the stakes of the story um, the way they should be. And I think the movies get better when you, when you really invest in them and when you know what they're a part of, that part of film history that, they're, that you're drawing on, mm -hmm. so. And even if it is predictable, if it's funny enough, like yeah. something like Christmas in Connecticut, if you're going old school, yeah. which is so funny, oh, that totally. it, it doesn't matter that it's predictable because you're enjoying totally. the experience. But then also if, uh, if the couple has enough chemistry, yes. then you can accept the most ridiculous plots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, a lot of what I like in the movies is when the characters tease each other, you mm -hmm. know, and and are comfortable enough with each other's foibles or flaws that they can that they can make light of them. And part of the interesting thing about making films is that is that it might be something that you always suspected, but it it's uh, you know, the the performers come to the movie not knowing each other. And so 
one of the things that happens sometimes on the film is as they get to know each other and they become friends, then you start to feel that chemistry inside the film. Um, so what I've tried to do in the schedules a little bit is to move you know, the key romantic moments of the end of the story to the end of the movie making schedule, to the end of the production schedule. So that then if you're fortunate, and I've only ever made one movie where I felt like there wasn't much chemistry between the performers. Um, but if you're fortunate, then they, by the time three weeks have gone by and they've been spending, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 15, 16 hours a day, you know, sometimes in the rain or the snow or what have you together, and they've come to like each other, then, then they can draw on that chemistry for the, those scenes. Mm -hmm. And, I think that I think that when it works, you know, and I think Laura and Nicholas would would admit to this. When it works, it it, it has a kind of. It's where you know a little bit of the reality of their friendship comes to bear on the on the romance scenes, and and I think the audience can see that. Well, that one really the chemistry went a long way in that movie because I have to admit when I first read the synopsis, I was like, this sounds really boring to me yes. because <laughs> they have they have made other Hallmark wine movies where yeah because i just don't care about wine or that's yeah. not interesting to me yeah so like the whole is the wine gonna be ready and yeah you know yeah, like yeah, it can yeah. be really boring you're like and i'll take a pass uh, plus you know that it's going to be ready like yeah. you know that so yeah. it's kind of like what are we doing here yeah. um but i thought they had really good chemistry yeah and it, that really helped it a lot to yeah. to work and i thought also just sort of her growth as a person, as you followed her, uh, since she was so kind of, I'm not gonna say controlled by her boyfriend, but yes, it wasn't like a, that strong of a character to start mm -hmm. with. So as she grew, mm -hmm. I thought that made it better because mm -hmm. you got to see her become empowered by the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we were pretty conscious of that. I, I never, I sometimes feel like the synopses for the movies, um, don't always do them justice mm -hmm. um and that's because they almost always talk about the relationship between the characters on an on a kind of even basis you know like she wants to be a master psalm and he's a winemaker you know but i mean and i think juan pablo would say this i mean but the bigger growth is in is for her character as you said and so it's not just her movie but her arc you know we start with her and and then we end with them as a couple but her it, we really follow her arc as as a as a character and we see her grow as a person mm -hmm. and and that's i think goes back to what you were saying a moment ago which is that if there's a predictability to the story then what you want to do is as much as possible bring the texture to the to the piece as you know as much texture to the piece as possible so that the person seems real and that they and that the you know that the desire that they have that's motivating them is something that's really really passionately held and so what i thought was amazing about laura's performance was that she and if and this really corresponded again to real life because we had jennifer huther in the movie who was a who had become a master psalm and you know it took her six years to, to pass that exam. And you felt, I think, how deeply important this was to Laura. And then as well, how she was sort of, you know, 
living out an idea that her grandmother had, you know, her grandmother had always aspired to this, to achieve this. And, and I think if you hadn't felt in Laura's performance that it was really, that it was, that it was a really great passion in her life, if it wasn't, if that wasn't, um, if that didn't feel real and textured, then the movie wouldn't have succeeded. Mm. So a lot of it really does come down to how deeply are the performers going to invest? And, and then, you know, commensurately one Pablo, because he is Argentinian, you know, he, he said at points like, this is the, this is the food that I would create for this dinner. You know, this is, this is what I remember about growing up in Argentina. And so can I change, you know, can I change this speech to reflect my, you know, my growth, my, my childhood. Um, and that, you know, that just, that's what makes the movie richer. So mm -hmm. the synopses don't, I think sometimes don't do the movies justice, truthfully. Yeah. So. No, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes they don't even really explain the movie at all. Like you're like, what? yeah, this is yeah. not what I just it's, it's, it's a tricky thing because all movies can be made to sound, you know, too simplistic. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like that's an area in which um, I, I guess what I would say to people listening to the podcast is don't don't always trust the synopsis yeah. because <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's, it's not going to necessarily emphasize what I think you know were the most exciting elements of the movie. So we'd like to take a second from this episode of the podcast to celebrate our sponsor of this episode, and that is the Hallmarkies Patreon. Do you love Hallmarkies podcast? Do you want an inside scoop into what happens on the podcast? Do you want early access to episodes and loads of cool perks? Now is the time to become a patron of Hallmarkies Podcast. By becoming a patron, you get to access our patron Facebook group. You can request episodes or even be a guest on the podcast. And most importantly, any patron can join our monthly movie watch-alongs with stars like Paul Campbell, Natalie Hall, and more. It's as low as $2 a month to join in and become a special part of the Hallmarkies family. Please consider, and we will love you forever. Go to patreon.com slash Hallmarkies. That's patreon.com slash Hallmarkies. You have a couple actually movies for Lifetime that I think are a little underrated that I wanted oh. to talk about. Sure. One of your first movies is actually one of my favorite TV movies. Oh. Yeah, I love Love Notes. Oh, lot. that's fantastic. Oh, I think that movie is so good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And Antonio Cupo is so dishy in that movie. <laughs> I love him so much. Yeah, no, I mean, um, yeah, I think that was the second television film I made. And uh, thank you for remembering it. It's, it's... I have it on DVD. Do you really? Oh, that's great. That's oh, right. wow, that's great. <laughs> I had an amazing time making that film. Um, I don't know if you realize, but Antonio was a producer on um, uh, Raise a Glass to Love. Oh, and yeah. So, yeah, so we, we, we were, <laughs> I'll have to tell him about this because we were good-naturedly teasing each other because I was you know, I said, like, I made you everything <laughs> that you are today. And he was like, hmm, I don't think so. Um, but he had just recently come back. He had been in television in Italy and he had come back to um, Canada and um, I had never met him and he was cast in the movie. And I was like, who is this Italian guy playing this country singer? You know, like, that's nuts. 
Um, but he was, he was, a, he's, he was, and he is Antonio, if you're ever listening to this, still a very handsome, um, you know, really compelling performer. Um, and, uh, and then it was Laura Layton who was yeah. the star. And there were so many things that were really interesting about that film because, you know, for instance, Laura was um, older, which is not always the case in romantic comedies where the, where the female protagonist is older than the male character. Um, and she's pregnant through a lot of that film and very visibly pregnant. So it's a, it's a very, it's a rare, <laughs> it's a rare romantic comedy where the, where the, the female character is, you know, ready to have her baby at any moment. So. Well, they just have such good chemistry and yeah. the banter. It's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a really good one. And like, oh, I really you. like her struggle to decide what to do. And it makes sense for her uh, and her, you know, her character and who she is and her history. Mm -hmm. And I just mm -hmm. think it's a good one. I really like it. Thank you. Thank you. I loved as well. That's a, I feel as well that anytime the movies um, have music in them or engage with music that they, mm -hmm. that they get better. And, and that they also, that they get um, we like, that they get more emotional, you know, yeah. because, because the music starts to reflect, you, you know, as, as, um, as an audience member, you start to feel like you understand what the characters are feeling because of the, the way they're engaged with the music. So, mm -hmm. so that, it just goes to shoot, show, I mean, that's all, it, it's stating the obvious, but it just goes to show how key music is to films and how much your experience of the movie is really bound up with how, you know, the right, the right piece of music on each part of it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the other one for Lifetime that I really like is Every Day is Christmas. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And because I'm a huge Christmas Carol nerd, I love yeah. Christmas Carol, but I just really liked the idea in this one of, so the Scrooge character mm. isn't really selfish. She's just broken she's just mm -hmm. traumatized by the loss of her her parents in a very mm -hmm. sudden thing and then so to have her parents be the ghosts yeah. was such a smart way yeah. to a take on with something different i've never seen yeah. that in a version of christmas carol yeah. to have to have the parents be the ghosts and every time she saw them mm. it it was devastating, which is so true. Like mm. it wouldn't matter if like my grandpa who have who've lost, like, it wouldn't matter if I had literally just said goodbye, seeing him again, I'd be like, Oh yeah, of you course. Know, yeah. missing so much. And, yeah. and I, I felt like that was really good and well, just you. very emotional. And I don't know, I just liked the different take on the story uh, mm -hmm. of it being about trauma versus being like selfish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that movie as well. And I, you know, I felt very privileged to, to direct, you know, Tony Braxton, but also, you know, Gloria Rubin played the mother yeah. and Gloria Rubin is just a straight up phenomenal actress. I mean, she's, she's, you know, one of those people who she's had prominence through her career. Um, you know, she has an amazing part um, as in um, the Steven Spielberg movie, Lincoln, she plays the maid to, to Lincoln. And she has an amazing scene with Daniel, Daniel Day-Lewis where they talk about the idea of the end of slavery. 
Um, but I, I felt like I felt I agreed. I agree, totally agree with you about the, the uniqueness of the premise of the movie. But what I also thought was really interesting is that, you know, if you're a grown adult and your parents came back to you as a ghost, they, you wouldn't have the same relationship with them necessarily that you would have had when you were a child or a teenager. So when Gloria Rubin as the mother shows up, she's almost sort of like a sister <laughs> to the Tony Braxton yeah, that's character. True. And, and like an older sister. Mm-hmm. And, and then the thing that I loved and that Gloria did so amazingly is that she's, she's just totally happy to be there, you know? Like she's totally happy to be, uh, you know, to have left the netherworld or what have you <laughs> and, you know, be back on earth in her, you know, in her pantsuit. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought that was so, you know, it's just one of those movies where the wardrobe was amazing and I was fortunate to work with an amazing cast and, and then, all the things that you said that were special about the story. I think that it really came together. Mm. And, and I just love that Tony and Gloria had that kind of um, relationship. So that for me, it's a very interesting romantic comedy because it's in the genre, because it's also sort of, it has a kind of ghosts of old boyfriends aspect to it. Um, but at the same time, the really, the principal relationship that you follow all the way through the movie is the, is the daughter and the mother. Yeah. And, and so, and I have, you know, I, you know, I started talking to you on this podcast about my dad and, and, and so, and he passed, you know, many years ago. And so, yes, I'm not a, a woman, but at the same time, I, I understand the emotion that you know that you were just alluding to if you're if if one of your parents or your grandparent or a loved one came back you know how how emotionally overwhelmed you'd feel but at the same time you know you know what I really as I said what I really loved was the the glory you know Gloria's character the mother was just she was just excited to be back on earth you know back messing around yeah messing up messing with her daughter's life you know once again so Mm -hmm. no I mean it was really good Oh, thank you. Uh, you've had so many uh, that I've really enjoyed. Like, I mean, Christmas to Remember, that's definitely a fan yeah. favorite. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I love and that movie. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, that's the thing where I, I just have been really fortunate because the, you know, that was, an, that was a movie where I got to work with Mira Savino and Cameron Matheson. But I, you know, I had always loved Mira Savino. I had a huge crush on her when I was young, younger. And, I told her and she was amused by that, I think. <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, and she's a comedic performer who is very, very gifted. And I mean, she has an Oscar, so it's not, that's not news, but there were so many things that she would do because you know she's lost her memory. And so she, she would mangle words or language you know, in such a funny and cute fashion that it was, there was, I, you know, it was real, that was one of those movies where it was unfortunate that it had to be, you know, 85 minutes because you could have made a longer version of it and allowed those scenes to breathe even more. But yeah. uh, I think that, that that was very early in the current sort of iteration of, of, of movies I've made for Hallmark. And that was, that was when I really, I knew that it was going to be exciting to work on these films because here was someone that I had always, you know, 
I thought it was well beyond my aspirations to ever get a chance to work with them. And here, here we were, you know, trying to, trying to make it happen. So. Well, and that one was tricky because you have to balance, like, you don't want it to become a, we kind of joke Hallmark or horror, you know, yeah. with her being with these people yeah, and totally. her memory. And like, I don't know, that that's a kind of a tricky thing to balance out, especially when she has a boyfriend and you yeah. know, like keeping it the right sort of tone yeah. is tough. Yeah, and and that's um, that's where really thinking about those classic movies that we were talking about earlier is really helpful in terms of trying to kind of find the right tenor for you know say the boyfriend's performance because you want her you want to be on her side and want her to fall for Cameron's character, but at the same time you don't want her to be running around with this guy you know without you know. Mm-hmm. any connection to the past so but that's what makes it interesting and that's a lot of what we talk about when we're on the set is is how like the right pitch to the scene and you know is this too light is this too heavy is this is this does the character seem too you know in the in that story you know I know we talked about a lot I got to talk with Mira a lot about like our is 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 the conceit about the memory make, does it make her too disconnected, you know, or, or how much, how emotionally connected she, should she be? And trying to find that balance and then carrying that through into the edit suite is really what's really key for whether the movie's gonna succeed or not, I think, so. Now with Bottled With Love, mm-hmm. that was a movie that Hallmark obviously had a, a lot of confidence in. They really mm-hmm. loved it. They promoted it with like critics quotes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it was, we were mm-hmm. like, what is happening with this movie? <laughs> but they were like, Did you feel like when you were making it that like, this is this is a good one? Yeah, yeah. Um, again, uh, I really like the script and that movie gets referenced um, with You've Got Mail a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course I knew the original genesis of it, which is that Ernst Lubitsch film, which you probably know the shop around the corner. Right. And so I, you, you know, it's a simple premise, but it's very, I felt it was ready to be made because everybody I knew was on their phone, right? Texting all the time. And it was right at the, not at the start, but it was right at that point where, you know, people were starting to text with partners or people that they might be interested in as romantic partners. And that thing was happening. And I was like, somebody should make a movie about that because that that's a way, you know, texting is really interesting because it's a it's instantaneous or it can be instantaneous. But on the one hand, you're you're texting and you're saying all these things that are sort of intimate, but it's very disconnected. You're not saying it face to face. And so to me the movie was really about texting. And You've Got Mail is, if you've seen it recently, it's great, great movie, but they have to go to their computers. They have to sit down. You know, the, the, the You've Got Mail literally starts with that dial-up sound from the, you know, mm-hmm. from the 90s the, of the, I don't even know what it is, but of the, you know, of the connecting to the internet through the, your mm-hmm. ethernet wire, you know? And so there's a strange, um, if you watch You've Got Mail, there's a strange formality to it because none of it's very spontaneous. It, like 
Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan have to go home, go to the chat room and connect with each other, you know, at a particular time in order to talk. Whereas it, with Andrew and um, Joy Lenz in, in Bottled with Love, you know, they can, they can be arguing with each other and pull out their phones and be texting with each other at the same time. That's true. And, That's and that was, I thought, that was a whole thing. Like I could make a, a still yet another whole romantic comedy. I think about that because that's so weird. I mean, that's, you're so, that's such a, there's something weirdly schizophrenic about that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was, I, I, I haven't, I actually should ask the executives that I know at Hallmark, but I think that that was what they connected to. It felt like a very, so for that reason, it felt like a very contemporaneous story to me. It felt very of the moment, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the other part of it that was really amazing for me was that, um, you know, Andrew and Joy knew each other from a previous movie. So right away, what I described earlier, which is that sort of process of getting to know one another and feeling comfortable with one another and feeling able to express vulnerability or romance or what have you in scenes, that was, that was already taken care of. Um, because they liked each other and they had made a romantic comedy together. So you had a bit of that chemistry to start with and we could manipulate that. And they were just as, they had just as much fun, particularly Joy with Andrew, you know, making fun of him and teasing him or being frosty toward him as, as she, did, uh, you know, as if, uh, as was in the story. So, uh, so there wasn't any, there weren't any barriers between like, oh, you know, I just met this person on Thursday and here it is Friday and I have to kiss them, you know? Hmm. Um, so there's that part of it. Then the other thing that I thought was really amazing was that the speech that, um, or the note that Joy um, throws in the bottle at the beginning of the movie, that was rewritten by Joy. And, that reflects a lot of, you know, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, but that reflects a lot of her experience in relationships and where she is at as a woman and, and disappointments that she's had, but also things that she'd come to love and appreciate about herself. And so that was an instance where the writing was already really, really good, but that's, that message was rewritten by Joy at the, right at the top of the movie and that gave it a greater feeling because that was genuinely reflective of who she was and what her what her feelings were. Yeah. And I just think that made the movie it 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 made it a notch above because it 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 had already you know an emotional investment from the performers that you wouldn't that you might not have seen if they just picked up a script and read the lines. So. Yeah. It was it was good. I especially that pancake scene was the is yeah. the highlight of the film yeah yeah it's very cute and, yeah and you know joy was very excited to eat that many pancakes they uh, you know she was like you don't have to pay me for this scene yeah i'll just do this scene for free yeah <laughs> um well christmas town is a movie mm -hmm. that was actually my favorite the year it came out i i oh, said great. that from Hallmark, I felt like it was kind of the perfect Hallmark movie. Mm. It had all of the elements that you want at first, mm. community and romance mm -hmm. and family, yep. all of that in there. And I thought it was really well done. And every time she would read one of those letters. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that was, that was yeah. I, I really like. I enjoyed that one. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that was an interesting movie because um, 
we actually shot um, a bit of that movie on a back lot. And um, mm. it's, it's always a struggle to find, you know, a lot of the movies, a lot of the Hallmark movies, particularly in the past, have centered around kind of the town square in the town. And that's, that can be hard to find because, you know, in modern, um, modern culture, towns are, you know, built around like the mall, you know, or a, a lot of, a lot of towns have unfortunately all but, you know, sort of demolished that sort of square. Um, and so we had found this back lot, which was bit, built for a television series in the nineties or maybe a movie, I can't recall, but it was just about to be torn down. And Craig Anderson, who was the producer, we went and we looked all over the place. And I kept saying, <laughs> I kept saying, you know, the movie's called Christmas Town. <laughs> like it's not called, you know, it's not called Christmas Highway. <laughs> um, so this place, look, there's a highway that goes through, like you're, you're taking me to this you're saying this could be this town square and there's basically there's a highway it's you know at a strip mall so uh, we went to see this um back lot and we thought we could get in to shoot literally i think two weeks before it was torn down for to become a, a used car dealership and I, I was like we just have to do it and craig anderson was the producer on that movie and i think he you know, I think he might have written a check out of his own pocket or he helped anyway. And we were able to shoot there for, I think, a week. And we shot all those great scenes where, you know, she's walking down the street and she first comes to the town or where she crosses the street and, and where they have the, you know, the, the, the town villagers come together, the town folk mm. come together and they have the tree lighting. And that was, again, it was part of my you know, my fascination with old movies where they would shoot, you know, they go, you know, and shoot on the Warner Brothers lot where the, where they had the New York street. And you, you know, you can see, I've seen a documentary where you can see, oh, that's the street in, you know, in that movie with Jimmy Stewart. And there's the street in that movie with Mickey Rooney. And there's, you know, and that, so I just found that immensely pleasurable. Plus it made the movie it opened the movie up just physically because it meant that I wasn't, you know, trying to shoot these scenes about the town with three lanes of traffic right behind right. me. And, and so there's, a, you know, it goes back to what we talked about a, earlier. There's a lot of practical considerations to, to directing as well. And one of the reasons that I was really so excited and intent on shooting on the back lot for that was that I really wanted us you know, to have that feeling of a town where, where, you know, if you're just crossing the street, you might run into the neighbor and then, and those, con and so those conversations happen spontaneously. Whereas if you're, if you're shooting and there's a highway, and then, you know, then you're not going to run into the neighbor unless you're on the traffic island or something. So it, so it was just all these simple mm -hmm. pragmatic things and trying to figure out what the theme of the movie was and then follow through in the theme. And that was, yeah, I, um, I wouldn't have known that, that it was uh, uh, shot on a lot. But now that you say it, there's mm. a coziness to the movie yeah, that I think exactly. is why I felt like this is just a perfect Hallmark movie yeah, because yeah. it, it just had that, it was like everything was filmed with like an amber hue to it. It was just yes. very cozy. <laughs> yes. And we did that as well on purpose. Um, Ryan McMaster, who's my, you know, I've made 
now probably six or eight films with him. He's a great cinematographer and uh, he shot Bottled with Love. And, and you know, with Bottled for Love, Bottled with Love, I mean, we tried to make the office, the office was all white and geometric and um, not cold, but not a terrifically welcoming space. And, and then that, you know, that contrasted with, you know, Joy's character's home, which was, you know, am had a lot of amber quality to it and richness and saturated colors and all that sort of thing. And then Ryan shot uh, Christmas Town and, and what we wanted it to feel like was like an old, you know, I said to him, it's like, as if you found um, like an old set of Christmas cards, you know, from the forties or something. And they had kind of yellowed a little bit with age and you pulled them out and, and that's what I wanted the town to look like. And so he, you know, in the old days, they would have put a, <laughs> they would have put, you know, um, some pantyhose over the lens or something that would give it that kind of sepia quality. But what, you know, now they just move all the dials on the camera and everything. It's like your iPhone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, but they, but he, that's exactly what we were trying to do. Give it, it, I wanted it to feel like a contemporary film that, but it like, as if it, it, it it all took place in the present day, but it had a feel, a little bit of feeling of nostalgia or the past or the mm -hmm. past to it. You know? Well, I think it succeeded. Thank and you. one last one I have to talk about is yeah. it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Oh yeah. Which I really enjoyed. We actually, we do these things called watch alongs with our mm -hmm. patrons mm -hmm. uh, that we invite a talent on to talk about when we watch the movie, uh, mm -hmm. one of their movies. And then, and we hear you know, behind the scenes and everything. So we had Rick Garman on, and oh, we watched okay. uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas uh, because I just think it's really underrated. I oh, I think you. that that it's frustrating because first of all, I think the title doesn't tell you anything. I don't yeah. understand yeah. why they gave it that title, especially if you're yeah. going to have it at the end of the season. Why mm. would you have it be called "It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas"? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, it, I I think it would have been better if they'd had it like the Christmas feud or the Christmas yeah. rivalry or something like yeah. that. But uh, so I think a lot of people didn't watch it uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's the end of the season. But mm -hmm. if they had, they would have realized that it was really good. And mm -hmm. the thing I guess I liked the most about it was just I thought it was really funny. And oh, good. Not, not even just the main <laughs> main couple, but I also really thought the these the secondary characters were really funny. Oh, the assistants. Like, the assistants. Yeah, their, yeah. Their yeah, to the mayors. Yeah. Everything. yeah. That was really yeah. funny to me. Yeah. And I don't know, just the whole concept of like this town being divided in two yeah. and this rivalry and like, yeah. even to the extent of the, the coffee shop is literally split down the middle. That yeah. was, it was really funny to me. Yeah. And I, I just, I liked Trisha and Eric in the lead roles. Yeah. They had good chemistry. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I had a great time making it. This was, that was the first movie that I made. I made two movies with Jim Head and that was the first who was the executive producer. And he's, um, he's often involved in the scripts as well. Um, but, you know, Rick, who I have to confess, I don't know, um, you know, he wrote a great script. So that was an instance where there wasn't much work to be done on the script at all. Um, and I really loved the, I just loved that idea as well about the two towns um, that are, 
so you know we had that little uh, montage sequence at the beginning yeah, explaining that. yeah like and a sizzle I, reel kind of yeah exactly yeah. and i and i just love the idea that everybody sort of acknowledged that the two towns really sh should be one town but at the same time nobody could kind of figure out how to bring it about to make it one town again so i thought that was really um pleasurable and again like sort of the idea that you would see it a movie from the 40s you know i thought yeah. um and the there there is a british film called that i talked about when i first was talking to jim about it um called passport to pimlico which is about a a borough it's a really forgotten movie but i saw it someplace and it's about a borough in london pimlico who in the at right after the second world war they're they don't feel they're being treated well by the government and so they declare themselves their own country and of course it's full of you know all those colorful british cockney characters and all that mm -hmm. sort of thing but i thought that was sort of the the thing was that everybody sort of knew it was ridiculous in the passport to Pimlico. everybody sort of knew the whole premise was the whole idea that they were their own country was ridiculous but they but nobody but they went along with it and i thought that was what trisha and eric you know that was the great thing about about that movie was they were so invested in being mayor of their town you know um but also for sure the assistants were uh, you know i had to you know once or twice i was like you know you can't steal the movie from <laughs> you know from they were the so funny i loved them and i also loved peter benson in the movie i yeah. thought that his character was really good and to have like a functioning co-parenting kind of situation yeah was really where they weren't enemies yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that as well. And, you know, now Peter's directing and um, he was, mm. <laughs> you know, he was asking a lot of questions <laughs> on the set. Yeah, you just um, did last weekend's movie. The, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just no, yeah, I haven't seen him for a while, but uh, I've made two films with him. I made one of, made one of the Wedding March films with him as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I loved it. And I, I just have to say, you know, I think Trisha Helfer is like a hugely underrated actress. Yeah. She's, she's, you know, she started as a supermodel, but she's one of the funniest. Um, yeah, you don't normally think of her as funny because she's yeah. like a Battlestar Galactica and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, and then and I made a movie. Very funny. Yeah, I made a movie with her called Operation Christmas, which was, again, produced by Craig Anderson. But that was basically very early in this phase of my career with Hallmark. And that was almost, that was a, almost a straight drama because it was about uh, military families at Christmas and, and um, you know, um, uh, you know, trying to get through the holiday season when your spouse is overseas and all that sort of thing. Um, so Trisha has that ability. She can, you know, she can mm -hmm. go, uh on you know she can go to the dramatic side but then in in its beginning she was she you know she's so light in that movie and so much fun and you you know you forget that she's gorgeous you a, a, again in the way that you would i think a, you know that she's a perfect example if there was a studio system she would be like one of those performers from the 40s where you know i mean part of the reason you don't resent Cary Grant's um, beauty is because he makes fun of himself and because he's mm. comedic. And that's the same thing with someone like Trisha or Mira or, or Joy Lenz or any, any of these, uh, you know, 
performers is that they're willing to laugh at themselves and that makes them approachable and fun. Mm -hmm. You want to spend an hour and a half with them. So. Yeah. Well, and it was refreshing too, to see Eric maybe it's in a comedy kind of role because, yeah. you know, we're used to him in uh, is Oliver and Science Seal Delivered and, yeah. you know, some of these more, you know, more serious kind of roles. Yeah. And so, uh, and he's sort of buttoned up in Science Seal Delivered and, so to see him kind of play this little bit, a little bit more unhinged kind of character, yeah, yeah. just a little bit, I think it was fun and, and they had good chemistry and I don't know, I just, I just really enjoyed it. I thought it was very yeah. funny. And okay. so I, I hope people will check it out if they yeah. haven't seen it. Uh, Cause I was kind of bummed about where it got placed in the lineup and, mm. you know, all that stuff. And, and mm. like I said, the title, I was like, what, this doesn't even make any sense. It doesn't have anything <laughs> to do with the movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, for me, that side of it is very, I'm somewhat removed from it. Um, the, the movies, once they're made, um, it's kind of oh, like yeah. the kids, like you just wish them the best and you try to, <laughs> you hope for, you know, that things will work out for them. But for me, the investment is in, is just in the, in the making of it and the experience of, of it. And, and, and as you can tell from, just this talk, a lot of it for me is about, you know, I had a great film prof when I was in um, film school who said, um, you know, every director is just making, remaking the movies that they loved when they were like 16 or 17 years old. And I just always loved those romantic comedies and I loved those George Cukor films and mm -hmm. the, those films that we've been talking about. And I just, you know, whenever I'm fortunate enough to get sent a script for one of these films, inevitably I start thinking about those movies yeah. and, 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 you know, oh, this movie's a bit like this. And, and, and didn't they, you know, this scene, didn't they do that amazingly in that, you know, in, in that old mm -hmm. Cary Grant movie or that Gene Arthur movie or what have you. And so, so to me, a lot of it is, uh, is about, about that experience and trying to bring to the audience some of the feeling that I had when I sat in that movie theater when I was you know 17 yeah. years old you know? well I appreciate it I mean I was looking through the filmography and I'm like I like that one and I like that one and I like that one. oh great oh great that's great thank yeah you. so uh thank you for taking the time to talk with us this was really fun uh, I really enjoyed it and uh I don't know do you have social media or anything like that that you want to share no no I'm I'm <laughs> <Don't> blame you <laughs> yeah I I opted out of that. <laughs> I don't no, I mean, maybe it's a generational thing, but for me, um, it's 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 still the experience of watching the films and I see my kids uh, and they, you know, they can their attention spans are challenged. Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, when social media started to become a thing, you know, even though I made Bottled with Love and I obviously, you know, that was about texting. Um, for me, it's like a thing of, of if I if, if I don't want to live that fractured a life, you know. Yeah. So no, I totally understand. Yeah. Uh, well, if you're listening to this podcast, let us know what you think of all the different things we've talked about. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comment section, or you can follow us on Twitter at Homeworkies Pod. And uh, please, if you're listening on iTunes, please leave your ratings and reviews. We really appreciate that. And if you are watching on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. We appreciate that so much. We also have our patron group, which we do the watch longs that I mentioned, and we have a lot of fun. Check that out. And we have our 
merch store, which has a ton of fun design. So please take a look at that. And uh, thank you so much, David. Really appreciate getting a chance to talk with you. And uh, hopefully we'll, ha we'll have to have you back on again because there's even more that we could talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So thanks so much. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. Take care.